Okay, so Philippians chapter 1, we're finally here um, after a couple months of uh, background, and I'm just going to give you a, um, a brief uh, uh, recap of last time. So what we, what, we, what we saw last time was that was Paul in his, uh, what was leading up to um, the occasion for him writing the book of Philippians. And we saw how um, in, as we read in the book of Acts, um, he was, he was um, falsely accused in Jerusalem um, under the, the Jews. He was almost beaten to death um, until uh, a Roman, sol- a Roman um, not a Roman soldier, a Roman commander rescued him. And he um, claims his Roman citizenship. And there's many events in, in there that we don't have time to cover, but claims his Roman citizenship, which which brought him to Caesarea Maritima, which he was to have a proper trial because he's not to be treated as a common criminal in Jerusalem and just beat for, you know, causing an uprising and then, you know, send him on his way. He's a Roman citizen, so he's he's um, um, has the right to a proper trial. They send him to Caesarea Maritima to be tried under uh, Governor Felix. He spends a period of two years there under Governor Felix. Um, and the Jews going back and forth is this long process, um, want him to be tried in Jerusalem again. Um, but what they're doing is actually plotting his death. Uh, they were going to ambush him on the way and kill him. Paul doesn't know this, but he does appeal his decision after two years of, of all of this going back and forth to Nero himself, to the emperor himself. So he appeals his, um, um, this, uh, this false, these, all these false accusations in this trial, and he says, I want to go to Caesar. So he appeals his trial. He ends up, um, they put him on a ship, ship him off to Rome, and uh, to, after a tumultuous trip to Rome, he finds himself there for another period of two years, and this is where we get um, the writings of four New Testament books, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So it's very important to, to understand what the lead up to, to that and where he is in the setting um, while he's awaiting um, to be seen by Nero himself, um, his appeals trial, he writes these letters. Now, we saw last time that the Philippians sent a man named Epaphroditus from the Philippian church to, a, to attend to Paul he, and to bring him a gift from the church to support Paul, which they had done many, many times prior to this. And also to report to Paul what was going on in the church. Paul wants to know these things. These, there's a number of men in different churches going up to Rome to see Paul, knowing that he's under house arrest there, waiting for his trial before Nero. And they're reporting all of how the churches are doing. And so Epaphroditus is one of them. And he's in our, in our letter here in, the Philippi, in, in our letter of the, to the Philippians. And... We know that on his way, he almost dies. He gets severely ill and almost uh, to the point of death. Uh, but he does report to Paul um, all that is going on in Philippi. Now, Paul, you, if you remember, planted the, personally planted the church at Philippi. He didn't plant every single church in the New Testament. Um, but he did specifically and personally plant the church at Philippi. And Timothy was with him, along with a couple other men. And so Timothy is, is with him here in prison. And he begins his letter here um, with him and Timothy with all of these things in mind 
about what Epaphroditus has reported about the condition of the church, how things are going. So his letter is prompted, as we saw last time, by is very much a thank you letter to the Philippians for all that they have done for Paul, how they supported him. And we're going to see actually next time all the support that they that they had from the very beginning supporting him in his missionary work. So he wants to thank them for that. But he also wants to address these issues that are going on internally, which we're going to look at here. And so Paul says uh, in chapter one, verse one, he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And so he opens up here, and Timothy is along with him. Of course, Timothy was with him when he planted the church. The church is very well acquainted with Timothy. Um, Timothy had been there several times um, with and without Paul. Um, and he chooses, Paul chooses his words very carefully. You have to understand, Paul is commissioned by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and now he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's very important for us to understand that all of the words, we tend to maybe skim over introductions like this. And so we want to get to the meat of what's being, you know, what's going to be said. But we would be, uh, we would miss out on the foundation that Paul is laying and what he is appealing to the Philippians from. So often Paul would say to the, to his readers, he would say, Paul, an apostle, he would establish his apostolic authority and then begin to tell them or exhort them in some way based upon his authority. Um, but he doesn't do that here. If you notice, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And what he is doing is he is basing his appeal to them on his identity in Christ. And notice there's no, if you look here, there's no definite article, and there's no definite article in the, in the Greek either. He doesn't say we are a bondservants or the bondservants. What he's saying is we are bondservants by nature. This is who we are. And what he wants to lay out for them is that this is who we are and this is who you are too. And this is going to be the foundation and the basis of his appeal to them. Um, based upon his identity in Christ. Now, we were born into slavery, as we saw last time, as Mark did a great job a couple of weeks ago, on what it means to be a bond slave, or a slave of Christ. And when we are born by our first birth, we are born into slavery to sin, right? By way of our first birth. We have these beautiful babies here, but unfortunately they're born into sin, right? As we all are. But unfortunate reality. But we are born slaves to Christ by way of our new birth, by way of our second birth. We don't become slaves. We don't achieve this. We are, by way of our second birth, a slave of Christ. And what Paul is saying is, he's, he's appealing to them based upon his identity and wants them to grasp this, that they are also slaves of Christ. And so a bond slave, as we, as we 
uh, were taught a few weeks ago is one who is wholly bound to another. He, his, his, a bond slave's will is completely swallowed up in the will of another. He doesn't have his own will. It has been completely erased and joined and bound to the will of someone else. That is what the Greek word doulos means, which should be translated always as slave. And, and Paul opens with this and says, we are slaves of Christ by nature. And a, a doulos, one who, who is a slave, he serves this other one to the disregard of his own personal interests. So the, really the opposite of slavery, being bound to someone else, is personal ambition, right? A, a pers having personal interest to do what you want to do. They're complete and polar opposites. And, and this is what Paul is getting at here. When we, when we see, read through the letters of Paul, he's so meticulous in the words that he chooses and how he wants to communicate. The Philippians were struggling with envy, strife, selfish ambitions. Epaphroditus has, is bringing all these reports to Paul, no doubt. These, uh, after 11 years of being a church, 11 or 12 years or so, being an actual uh, fellowship, um, they had self-centered preoccupations, competing agendas, possibly also in the leadership. And so Paul definitely has these things in mind. If you look at um, chapter 1, verse 27, I want to show you a couple passages here of Paul addressing these things. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See how he's addressing these things of unity? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness. We are going to get to this passage and, and break this down when we get there in, in a few months. Do nothing from selfishness. Think of that. Nothing. Or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You see why he opens up bond slaves of Christ. He's appealing to them based upon his identity that he has embraced. And he's saying, you should embrace this identity too. And so the main core of his appeal to them is really in chapter 2 verse 5 through 8. And this is the hinge passage in this entire letter that everything else that Paul is going to tell them is going to hinge upon and rest upon this passage right here. In verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto but emptied himself 
taking the form of a what? Bondservant, a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see, Paul is not saying, don't just model yourself after me. Look at Christ and how what he did, being highly exalted as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and condescended himself and became a slave. And we are to model our lives after the Lord. And one could even argue that this is the hinge passage in the entire New Testament. All of the appeals to God's people to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart, to be like Christ, and to walk after him and walk in his shoes, uh, walk in his example. Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, 1 Peter chapter 2, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he reviled not in return, while suffering he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Paul saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the foundation as we look at this first passage here. I couldn't even get to the verse two in my notes because there was so much here that I wanted to appeal to you guys as Paul is appealing to the Philippians to lay the groundwork of what this letter is going to communicate and what the Holy Spirit under the uh, uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to communicate to us in 2022. What is our life life supposed to look like? Now he uses this bond slave metaphor, and it's really just a metaphor, right? It's not a complete picture of our relationship with Christ. The Scripture uses dozens and dozens of metaphors to help us begin to understand our relationship, and the reality of our life in Christ. The master and his slave is just one of them, right? One of the, another one that is used multiple times in Scripture is the teacher and his disciple, right? A teacher wants to transfer his wisdom or her knowledge to her students or his students so that they can have the understanding and knowledge that their teacher has, right? We have the metaphor of, the, of, of, of a king and his subjects or his people. A king's right over his people. You see that many times in scripture as well. And what these metaphors are doing is helping us to begin to really just scratch the surface of what our relationship with God is like. Jesus uses, uh, the script, New Testament uses the groom and the bride metaphor, right? This idea, this, uh, this communication of closeness, oneness with us and our creator. He uses the, the scripture uses the metaphor of the head in the body, the body having many members and being members of one another and Christ being the head, right? Jesus gives us the metaphor of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Is Jesus a literal vine? That's No, what he's saying is if you cut off a branch from a tree, 
what happens to that branch? It's going to wither and die. And he's picturing, he's depicting, it's a word picture of the reality of our life sources in God is in Christ. And he says, that's why he says, abide in me and I in you. Because I am your life source. And if you're cut off from me, you have nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he uses also the picture of the shepherd and his sheep, right? And so these are metaphors that the Bible gives us. Why does, why does God do this? Why does Jesus always use um, agrarian examples, you know, examples that we can, the sower and his seed, right? We see all these pictures because we cannot, we are finite and God is so infinite. He's, we're in, infinitely worlds apart in our nature and what we understand. Think about the difference between you and your pet or your animal. Think of the difference there, right? And it's, and it's just a, a, a slight picture of our relationship with God in that when I look at my dog, it's just we're completely worlds apart. He doesn't understand the things that I know. He doesn't understand why we are doing the things that we're doing, right? And so you have this picture of the shepherd and the sheep. Sheep are not very intelligent animals. We should not be offended by this, okay? <laughs> um, it's a picture of the sheep is wholly and completely dependent upon the shepherd for its survival. It cannot survive on its own. The shepherd brings the sheep out to good pasture so they can feed well. Brings them by good and clean waters to water them. Is a safe haven. Is a protector. Guarding the sheep from outside influences that might bring the sheep under attack. The sheep are completely dependent on the shepherd for its survival. It's a picture. And these things only scratch the surface of our relationship with God and our relationship to Christ. The reality of our life in Christ is so amazing. And this is why the scripture uses these pictures to help us. We're just sheep, right? We are finite little minds. And God is so infinitely, infinitely incomprehensible. And he gives us these pictures so that we can begin to understand our beautiful, connected relationship to him. And so Paul uses this because this particular one, because he's appealing to them because of their problems and their issues that he so desperately wants to correct. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you shortly so you know, he can report back to me. And he's so concerned about their spiritual condition. And he goes on to say, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Notice he says to all the saints. Now he doesn't he doesn't reference them as a group or a church necessarily, um, or as a gathering. He he says to all the saints. So what he's doing he's he's referring to them as individuals. Paul knew pretty intimately well many of the people that were in this church. You remember Lydia from Thyatira, the, the seller of purple fabrics, and 
she was the first convert in Philippi, where all of her family and the servants in her home were, were um, saved and baptized and became members of the church. And the church first met in her home. You remember the demon-possessed slave girl who Paul cast the devil out of and released her from her cruel masters and her captives. She possibly could have been in that, remained in fellowship with them. And of course, we have the Philippian jailer whose whole family was baptized, um, came to faith as they were um, scrubbing the wounds and, and, and washing the wounds of Paul and Silas after they were beaten with rods, mercilessly. And so Paul had been there several times throughout his missionary journeys. He was very well um, acquainted with the members personally. And he says, to all the saints, it shows that closeness that Paul had with this church. And he says, to all the saints, now he's continuing to lay out their identity in Christ. And what is a saint? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now a saint literally means to be set apart. It means holy ones. And when we think of the word saint, there are, there are other words like sanctuary or sanctification that give you that understanding of what saint means. It's a set apart for holy use, for special use on connotation. It has roots from the Latin where holy and holiness, they sound very different, saint and holy, but they're actually almost the same. Holy and holiness come from the Anglo-Saxon roots, so that's why you have a difference there. Um, but they represent the same family of words in the biblical languages. The Hebrew is kadash, and the Greek is hagios, which means to be holy, set apart, unique. And this is what God has done with us as we have come to Christ. He is setting us apart for special use. And we are to be holy. You remember Isaiah when he was being commissioned by God as a prophet. And he gets this vision of, of heaven in the throne room of God, literally. He's in the throne room of heaven. And he says the train of his ro robe filled the temple. And he says, I saw seraphs or seraphim angels flying, but they had six wings and two of their wings they covered their feet. Two of them, they covered their faces. And with the other two, they flew. And they cried out one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Think of that. Why would they cover themselves up? It's po quite possible that they're covering their feet because maybe they had gone to places that were unholy in the world. Maybe they were covering their eyes because they had seen sinful things. But when they came back into the presence of the Lord, they couldn't even look upon him because he was so holy. And that all-consuming purity of God. And they're flying, crying out night and day, not ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we see it in the book of Revelation, picked up again, and they're, they're called different, they're called living creatures, which are quite possibly being the same beings, constantly before the throne of God, crying out. 
And notice they don't say, out of all his attributes, which are infinitely beautiful, love, power, they're not saying those things. What's, what's blowing their minds is the holiness of God, the separateness, the uniqueness. What they're saying is different, 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 unique, 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 pure, 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 holy other than his creation. Think of that. And so Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice he doesn't say you shall be as holy as I am holy. We could never be. He says, be holy for I am holy. And when we're in his presence, it is we will never come to a place where we go, oh yeah, I got it. I got God. Yeah, he's... No, it's ever increasing, incomprehensible, always revealing for all of eternity, learning, being exposed to this, the radiant glory of God, which will never be exhausted. Always crying out in angels, which are infinitely, uh, not infinitely, but far superior than we are in intelligence in their creation, are still crying out, holy, holy, holy. He says, but you are a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Listen, the saint is somebody who is set apart by God, chosen for a special use, for a specific purpose. And I want to illustrate this for you. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I want you to see this here. It's sort of a different light, but very similar to what God is calling us to do. Daniel chapter 1. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sieged um, Jerusalem and took many captives out of the land of Judah. And it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability to, for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. 
Now, I understand this is a negative example, but I want you to see this is essentially what God is doing with us. He has chosen us and set us apart. Notice that they are to learn the literature in the language of the, they are learning principles and characteristics of a whole different kingdom. Remember, they came from Judah. They came from Israel. They had their own culture, their own language, their own history, their own, all of those things that they were familiar with. They were coming into a whole different land, a whole different place. And he's training them to be attentive to the king and serve the king um, and have special access to the king and to, and to eventually serve in his court. And think of this in terms of our relationship with God. He has chosen us, set us apart for special use. See, when we're saved, we're not just saved so that we can just wait this whole life thing out and then I'll go to heaven and you know float on clouds and play the harp you know, for all of eternity. We are saved unto good works. We are saved unto service. We are being set apart for a specific purpose that God has for us. And so, likewise, with Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They are being set apart, taught the literature and the language, had to eat the the king's choice food. They were educated three years. Think of this as a picture. We are being set apart and learning and being trained and, and coming to know the rules and principles of a whole different kingdom, the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a whole different kingdom. Remember um, when he was before Pilate and he says, Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, I would have legions of angels coming to defend me and to fight for me. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not like this world. And so what we are doing, what God is doing with us, is training us in helping us to grow and understand characteristics of a completely different kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we are being trained to serve him here and also in the ages to come. We're not going to just be floating on clouds and playing the harp. We're going to be serving Christ in a perfect kingdom. First, his thousand-year millennial kingdom, which I can't wait for. We are going to serve him there. And here, think of this as a training ground of, of our sanctification becoming more like Christ, who is our great example. He is the one who went before us and showed us what it means to live before God. Right? And now we are in now this process of being set apart, sanctified. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And what a beautiful thing. Not only are we going to serve him, but we can attend to the king. We are granted sacred fellowship with God. What a beautiful truth to behold his beauty. We are granted access to him. We are called into sacred fellowship with God. Very unique. And so we are to be holy, for he is holy. We are called to consecrate ourselves 
continually unto him for his special use, right? To serve in the king's court. We can do that now, and we will do that for all eternity. And so one might ask the question, how could this be? How could we be saints when we're such sinners, right? That's the reality, right? We, in, our, in our walk, in our experience, we have this sin that we wrestle with, don't we? And how could God call us saints and sanctified and holy ones if we have such sin? And the reason being, the answer is, is because we are in Christ. He says, saints, in Christ Jesus. And what does it mean to be in Christ? Remember Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The behold, uh, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then, he, and then he says in verse 21, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I'm going to have Luke come up. I mean, this, you may have been wondering why I had these mugs up here. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of coffee. But um, no, I have these mugs. Because we're going to do a little object lesson to help us understand what it means to be in Christ. Okay? So Luke is going to represent humanity and our sinfulness. Okay? So the black mug, and I like that. Okay. <laughs> the black mug represents sin and wrath, the sin that incurs God's judgment. And this is us. And I'm going to represent Christ and his perfect righteousness. Okay? Yeah. That's why I got this bright shirt on today. I really wanted to shine for you guys. So, this, essentially, this is what happened. He says, he made him who knew no sin, right, to be sin on our behalf. He takes our sin and judgment upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's this beautiful exchange, this trade-off that happens at the cross and, and at our moment of our conversion. Jesus took our sin and the wrath that incurred and bore it for us upon the cross. And the God imputed to him our sin and wrath so that we might become his righteousness. So when God looked at Christ upon the cross, it was as if he was treating him as if Jesus committed all of those sins. His wrath was being poured out upon His own Son on our behalf. He took up our sin upon Himself. And of course, He was sinless, but
but he took this upon God, imputed it to him, so that it could be judged perfectly, righteously upon the cross. So that we, go ahead, you can still hold it. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. It's, and he treats us as if we committed all the righteous acts of Jesus. And a better, even better analogy is if we could, or picture is if we could shrink Luke right now and put him inside the cup. And that's what it means to be in Christ. <laughs> Honey, I shrunk the kids. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Good job. This is what it means to be in Christ. We are enveloped by his righteousness. Now, are we wholly righteous and pure? No, we're not, right? But God treats us as though we are because of imputation. And the theologians call it the doctrine of imputation. It is so important in Scripture that God laid upon his son the iniquity of us all. Doesn't it say that in Isaiah 53? Laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's right here. His, he's perfect, but he laid upon him all of our sin and iniquity so that we might become his righteousness. Paul says that I, in, in Philippians 3, he says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or any kind of works. We don't attain this righteousness by works. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, he's not, it's not a righteousness of his own. We can only be considered a saint when we have Christ's righteousness, not pseudo-human effort righteousness, which is, which is like trying to swim from here to Europe. How far are you going to get? That's about what it's like. Picture that. Trying to achieve God's righteousness. No, it's based upon our faith in Christ. We receive this righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so, God can say things like, this is called what we call positional truth. Even though we are sinful, we are being sanctified and set apart. We are exhorted by God in the scriptures to consecrate ourselves and set ourselves apart. Be holy because he is holy or he is holy. But we're in our position. God says amazing things in scripture like, and of these whom he justified in Romans 8, he also glorified, which he says in the past tense. And I look at myself and I go, I'm not glorified, right? But God can say those things because he can, he's referencing things yet future as if it's already taken place. Okay? He's referencing something that hasn't even happened yet. But he's treating it as though it's already been done. He says in another place in Ephesians 2, 5-6, he says, And even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. My, are we seated in, with Christ in heavenly places? It's a finished work. And the righteousness which is received from God on the basis of faith is a finished work. We are fully righteous because of Christ, positionally. And now, in our experience, we're being set apart and exhorted and called to live out that reality that God has worked within us. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to attain more faith and more spirit as some of the charismatic movements would would go about. I need more of Jesus. I need more of this kind of poured in. It's already all done. It's all finished. It's a finished work that God has done within us. Now we're working it out. Paul says in Philippians 2, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do. And so we are working this out, being set apart as saints for special use because we are in Christ. See, otherwise, we would be constantly incurring God's wrath, wouldn't we? Because we're sinful, right? If we weren't in Christ, hidden in Him, we would be constantly incurring God's wrath. But because it's a finished work, we are in Christ and imputed His righteousness is imputed to us based upon this beautiful exchange that He takes our sin and wrath and gives us His perfect righteousness. We are not under wrath. And so this is, Paul is appealing to them based upon their identity. And he's going to lay out his arguments and appeals and his exhortations based on these truths. And that's why I brought this message today, because it's so important to understand these foundational things about what God has done in us and what he is calling us to do. Setting us apart for special use. To serve Him, to attend to Him, and to have sacred fellowship. What a calling. And so our identity, really, is twofold. Our identity is in Christ Jesus, as we just got done explaining. But it's our identity is also in wrapped up in his body as well. We are, it is a two-pronged identity. Our identity in Christ and our identity in his church, in his body. Paul says in Romans 12, he says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, my fingers don't do what my knee does, my feet doesn't do what my elbow does, right? So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are intricately connected to each other. Remember, we talked about that beautiful metaphor of the head and the body. It's just one of many to help us understand the reality of our life in Christ. And so the body 
and so situated to perform tasks, right? And the brain tells everything in the body what to do. As I'm turning pages, my brain is sending signals to my hand and my fingers, right? To turn the pages. It's all from the head to the body. And this is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God collectively. And so our identity is in Christ and in his body. And there are two parts to this. There's actually um, was, there's two parts, and then I'm going to give you another two uh, ramifications or effects of what happens when we are not functioning well. So if, we're, if our identity is wrapped up in, his in, in Christ and in his body, we have to be present, right? Wouldn't that be, um, I mean, think about how well you could do your job without one of your hands or one of your feet. Think about that. Or one of your eyes. If we're not present, we're like a dismembered part of the body. Right? We have to, at the very least, be with one another. Gather with one another. This is our, we are called to this. And the other part to that is, are we functioning well? Are we functioning the way in which God has equipped us to? I'm actually right now uh, building a fire pit in my backyard. And it's pretty exhausting work. I'm, I'm working with pavers and all that kind of stuff. And my brain wants to do more work, right? But my back, my lower back is not functioning well, okay, after a couple hours. And so my will is to do the more work, but my back saying, I can't, right? I, he my back is not functioning well so that I can't accomplish what I will to do. And that's what happens when the body is not functioning the way it's supposed to. And so not only should we be present, but we should be functioning in the gifts that God has given us. Discover your gifts. Find out what they are and employ them into Christ's body because this is our identity that he's given us. This is his way in which he's sanctifying us, setting us apart for special use. And so, functioning well is so important. Not only to be present, but to be functioning well. And when we're not functioning well, when my back is killing me, right? My whole body is screaming. It's really just my back, right? You get a paper cut between your fingers. My, your whole body reacts. It affects the body when the when each member is not functioning in a healthy way it affects the body and it also hinders the will of god and that's the second part of the effect and the ramification of not being present and functioning in a healthy way as god has designed us to it hinders his will i have the will to want to do more work but my body's not responding, right? So the body is to perform the will of the mind, Christ being the head and we are the body. And so these are all wrapped up in our identity, in our sainthood, in our holiness, 
as God has called us to. This is God's will for us, our sanctification, the Scripture says. We are to be set apart. We already are. But but the Scripture is crying out, work it out. Live out your separateness. Live out this holiness. Like Daniel, and the, they, were to, they were being trained to serve in the king's court. And we are too in the greater kingdom court of God. And so we continue. Paul goes on to say, and this is my last point, He includes the overseers and deacons. And this is very significant because there's no other place in Scripture that Paul includes the leadership, the offices of the church, in his greeting. This is very significant. And it tells us um, some things about the Philippians and what they're struggling. It gives us hints as to what some of their issues might have been. And so he says, the overseers and deacons. Now, an overseer and bishop and elder and pastor are synonymous. They're the same person in Scripture. Where elder would will um, speaks to the title of the office, the overseer speaks to the activity of the office, what he is doing within that calling. He's exercising oversight of God's people. He's shepherding. As a pastor means shepherd. And this is what the overseer does. And a deacon is just one who serves. And that's what it simply means, one who serves. And the deacons and deaconesses are to exemplify what it looks like to serve and care for those in in the fellowship with the compassion of Christ. That's what they're called to do. That's what they're called to exemplify, I should say. We're all called to that. But the deacons and deaconesses exemplify that in leadership. And this is all laid out, these qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. But I want to ask, answer this question. Why would he describe this? Why would he uh, excuse me, include this, this exhortation specifically to the overseers and deacons? He had already said to all the saints. So why is he including them? It's very interesting. And they have, may have been the, at the root of the problems in Philippi, these selfish ambitions and envy and strife may have been at the upper levels in the, in the fellowship. They may have been in the leadership itself. And what is Paul saying? What, he, he's saying, listen up, leadership, listen up to what I'm about to say, because this pertains to you. I'm a bondservant. Paul and Timothy, bondservants, by, slaves by nature. And this is who you are too. Remember, Jesus says, if you're going to lead, the leaders are the foremost servants of all. Reminding them, hey, overseers and deacons, listen up to what's about to be said. And so there's a tremendous, leadership in the church has a tremendous impact on the health of the church, on the health of any church. You know, we... we um. You remember the, the, the old uh, saying, the fish rots from the head. It's true. <laughs> the fish rots from the head. But, but Mark's saying, no, it doesn't rot from the head. No, no, well, I've let's just take the... Oh, okay. 
All right, well, maybe it's not as common as I thought. <laughs> there is a saying, <laughs> the fish rots from the head. And it is absolutely true. As the leadership goes in any church, so goes the people. As the leadership goes, so goes the congregation. If you want to know anything about a leadership of the church, you don't have to make an appointment with the pastor. Go and talk to the people. What's on the hearts and minds of the people in the fellowship? And that will tell you everything you need to know about the leadership. Right? Because everything comes down. Everything trickles down. They are an, supposed to be an example of what it means to serve in God's kingdom. The principles and new characteristics of God's kingdom, of this other kingdom that we're learning. God's leaders, these offices, are to exemplify what that looks like to the people. Not perfectly, of course, but to be an example. And I exhort the elders. And when I point that finger, notice this three pointing back at me. That our leadership is so vital to exemplify, to be under shepherds. Remember those beautiful pictures of Christ? He is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And we're to be like him in all those things. So this is our identity in Christ and in his body. And the leadership should be the first ones to exemplify that reality and that calling upon the church to be a part of his body. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this uh, word that you've given us. Lord, thank you for Paul uh, and how faithful he was um, to, to be tirelessly serving your church and how concerned and the compassion that he had and he had so wanted the Philippians to grow in their relationship with you. And Lord, as we, these timeless truths apply to us even today, Lord, help us to apply these things to our life and to live in the reality of who we are in you and in your body, that we would live these things out, Lord, ever increasingly, more and more each day as, as we continue on, Lord, that we would be growing and being sanctified, set apart, and unique and called unto special use for you in your kingdom. Lord, help us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.